Welcome to the second session of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this on the 1st of January, then today should be the 2nd of January. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 4-7 to and Psalm 2. In yesterday's session, we started the book of Genesis and briefly looked at its dating, structure and themes. We read about creation, God bringing his order to the earth. Along with the earth, we read how Adam and Eve were created and given the mandate to spread God's order across the earth. They were also given the choice to partner with God, to learn what is good or to go their own way and decide good for themselves. Unfortunately, they go for the latter and are separated from God and now experience mortal lives that will eventually lead to death. This set up a theme that we'll see repeated of children of Eve that image God and children of the serpent that lead to chaos and death. We mentioned how this is normally called the fall and that this fall actually stretches all the way up to Genesis 11. And so we're going to be picking up on this fall today. So Genesis 4 to 7, the fall continues. Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. Once grown, Cain begins to work the land and Abel becomes a shepherd. When they bring their respective offerings to God, God prefers Abel's offering. This sets up a new theme that will reappear multiple times in the Bible. In a culture where the firstborn is the one with the authority and blessing, God prefers the secondborn. Cain is understandably jealous, but God warns him that sin is crouching at his doorstep like a beast. This is Genesis 4 verse 7. He has a choice. Choose right living as a descendant of Eve made in the image of God, or be controlled by that beast, a child of the serpent, that lead to chaos and destruction. Cain chooses to be a child of the serpent and murders his brother. We see the very ground itself being polluted by Abel's blood. We then get the descendants of Cain, and we're meant to assume that like Cain, they're all wicked and evil children of the serpent. This is particularly true when you get to Lamech, who manages to twist God's curse over Cain into protection for himself as he goes around killing whoever he wants and taking as many wives as he wants. Meanwhile, Adam and Eve have another child called Seth, and we then get a list of Seth's descendants. If you compare the list of Seth's descendants with the list of Cain's descendants, the names are very similar. And this is because we're meant to contrast the two, as though Cain's family is the example of humanity at its worst, the children of the serpent, but Seth's family are an example of what humanity can be, descendants of Eve made in the image of God. Then in Genesis 6, we get our second key moment of the fall. We have this weird story about the sons of God taking wives and then giving birth to Nephilim, giant hero men. There is some debate whether the sons of God are human leaders or whether they're key spiritual beings in God's heavenly court. However, when we look at how the phrase sons of God is used elsewhere in the Bible, we see that it likely refers to these spiritual beings. See, for example, Job chapters 1 and 2. It's not clear in the English, but this story is almost a repeat of Genesis 3. Just as Eve saw the fruit that was good and took it, these spiritual beings saw that the women were good, beautiful, and took them as wives. They married them. It can be easy to miss this because the English words used are different, but in the original Hebrew, these are the same words used again. Now, this may seem strange to us, why would these spiritual beings want to sleep with human women? Well, the humans had just lost their immortality, so they turned to this group of shady spiritual beings to try and see if there's a way to restore the immortality by having part spirit, part human babies 
that would be immortal. These babies became known as the Nephilim and were much taller than other humans. This is why God declared that he would limit the age of all humans, including Nephilim, to 120 years. It also explains why God sent the flood. He saw that the human race began to be contaminated by corrupt spiritual beings and so decided this needed dealing with by flooding the earth and destroying the contamination. Just as God split the waters to create the earth in Genesis 1, now he's going to let those waters come crashing back together, taking the earth back to its original form. And so God recruits Noah to be the one through whom the human race will continue. He's to build an ark and collect every kind of animal together so they can survive the flood. In this moment, we see a glimpse of God's ongoing plan for the world. God chooses a small group of people to redeem the entire world. So Noah builds an ark and fills it with animals, seven pairs for each clean animal and a single pair for unclean animals. He and his family join the animals on the ark and the waters come crashing back in. Just as the splitting of the waters brought order and life, the waters returning meant the destruction of this tainted creation, a return to chaos, to what it was like before God's order. That's Genesis 4 to 7. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. See Psalm 18 or Psalm 72 for other examples of royal psalms. Royal psalms are psalms that are focused on either God as king or on a human king. This psalm was likely read out during the coronation of new kings. It can be broken into four sections. Here is a simplified summary of the structure, but I would always recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly. So first of all, we have verses 1 to 3. The foreign nations and rulers rebel against God and his king. Then verses 4 to 6, God mocks these rulers by establishing his own king. Verses 7 to 9, this king is declared God's son and the earth is his inheritance. He has authority over it all. And then finally, verses 10 to 12, the foreign rulers are warned of the wrath of God for anyone who rebels against God's chosen king. God's chosen king is described as his anointed, which is a very simple reference to when kings were anointed with oil when they were first appointed. For now, it's just another way of referring to the king, the anointed one. But over time, this word is going to take on new meaning. In the same way, this psalm at face value should first be interpreted in light of God's authority over the nations and the authority he gives his king over his people. God is the one with the authority. The king plays the role of his son, his physical representative on earth. But that doesn't mean we have to stop our interpretations there. As we read further into our Bibles, we will reach a point where God's people are waiting for a future king who will redeem God's people and reunite the nations, an anointed one. Indeed, when we get to the New Testament, those writers begin to interpret Psalm 2 in a whole new light. And so just as Psalm 1 opens the book of Psalms by sharing its intent to help people meditate on God's word, Psalm 2 sets out the hope and promise of the Psalms. A future king is coming, one who provide all the wisdom found in the wisdom Psalms, heal all the pain found in the lament Psalms, and who is worthy of all the praise found in the praise Psalms.